time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. So what happens at midlife when life makes a change? Well, today I have a chance to talk with Marie Elizabeth Molly, who is a midlife transformation specialist. Now, after earning multiple academic degrees and marrying the right man and living a dream life that turned out not to be her dream, Marie Elizabeth left to discover what her dream really was. And she now travels the world photographing sharks and whales, writing poetry and living with the love of her life, and also looks at a path of self-discovery. Now in her 50s, she feels more alive now than ever before. As a midlife transformation specialist, she helps people to understand how to make the shift in their life and move through to find their greater and deeper life that they didn't know existed. Join me now as I chat with Marie Elizabeth Molly. Marie Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here on the Thrivology Podcast. I, I don't just have anybody on. I like to have people on who have uh, something to say to help people to thrive. And so you're here because you are, do that on a regular basis with lots of people. And the, probably the best place is just to kind of in a maybe a sentence or two say what you help people do. And then I'd like to you to share a little bit about how you got to here. Thank you. Yeah, Lee, it's so great to be on here with you. And I'm grateful that you asked me to come on. And what I do is I guide people to stop sacrificing their relationship f- on behalf of their work and to actually redress or rebalance things so that the love and pleasure and play and joy that they have in their life is what fuels their success. It's not a distraction. It's not um, something, a second thought, an afterthought, but it's actually the fuel and the nourishment that they need in order to be out in the world more fully as who they are. Okay. Um, So here's what usually happens with people when they finally figure out what their life mission is. It's because they had to figure it out for themselves. And then they're sharing that for the world. So talk some about um, how you got to here. How did you, what what were the kind of the bumps in the road and the, the difficulties you had? And then your successes on how you found kind of the life that you're meant to lead. Yeah, I I was raised, my father was a doctor, a medical doctor, and loved his work, super fulfilled. He went to work from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and just came home tired and happy and fulfilled. And and so I saw that. And my mother was at home uh, when I was around three or so. She stopped working, and so she was making dinner. And she was often, you know, he would get home late from work, and she'd be upset. And so as a child, I was growing up seeing these two models, and I really – I think I made an unconscious decision looking at them that, well, I want to be like him. I'm going to just love my work and go out there and and help people. And so I ended up getting into healthcare. I was a a massage therapist then I was a licensed acupuncturist and herbalist. And since then have become a coach. And so I've really been in the space of helping people and all through my twenties, every single relationship I was in at some point, he would end up saying, your clients always come first. What, what, I, you know, what's up with that? And I would look at him like, yeah, of course they do. I didn't, I was so deep in it. I didn't even know that was a problem. I just thought he needed to get a life, you know? And 
it wasn't until now in, in, I'm now in my early fifties and I'm in a relationship that is the best relationship of my life. And it began to happen again. I could see it creeping in where my, I was putting my clients first. I was putting my schedule before our time together. And I finally just said, no, this is not going to happen again. It's, I have to figure this out and work this out because this relationship is, is worth saving. And so I did. I've, I've rebalanced my own life. I've reprioritized my own life where I love what I do and I love my clients. But I know that my relationship is the most important thing that feeds me. Interesting. You um, not to not to jump on the uh, counselor's chair, but uh, you basically <laughs> lured the your uh, the relationships so that the other person was your mother, upset about the fact that you know she was cut out Isn't or that he, they were cut out. Interesting, right? So interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and you the, found and, your pleasure yeah. from there and cut off from the relationship. Yeah, exactly. I found I always felt my pleasure to be, uh, um, coming from my work. And I, I enjoyed my relationships. I loved, you know, I loved the men that I was with, but, um, but I, but it took me a while to realize that a, it didn't have to be so compartmentalized that, that the, that the fuel and nourishment of the relationship had its place in my work and that my pleasure and drive and, enjoyment of my work also has a place in my relationship. They, they don't have to be so separate. So in that process, it's not necessarily deciding that uh, work can't be fun. <laughs> you don't have to figure out a way of taking the pleasure away from that. It's a balance. Not at piece. all. Yeah. It's a balance. It's a both and it's a, it's a no longer separating things into two camps, but rather having them feed each other. And, um, you know, the, the growth, that I experience in my relationship benefits my clients Mm -hmm. and the growth that I experience through working with my clients benefits my relationship. They, they, they're not separate. So earlier, uh, when we were chatting, you talked about, um, this inherited identity. Let's talk some about what that looks like. So I, uh, I like to work with people to uh, take apart or look at and understand what is what are their inherited identities from their family of origin, from the culture, from their education, and from their religious background in particular, because those uh, those four things influence who we know ourselves to be, and certainly in the family side. We're raised to be a certain way. We're raised to marry a certain kind of partner, to have a certain profession. You know, there, there's a lot of um, conditioning that is necessary as the self is forming to have a kind of scaffolding for being able to be successful in life. But at some point, and this is why I love working with people in midlife, because it usually hits in midlife, we realize, oh my God, I'm living this life that doesn't fit me. And, it, you know, I, I'm trying to be like my father or I'm trying to be like my mother or I'm, I'm like uh, Mrs. Thomas in third grade. I'm trying to be the person she wanted me to be, what, whatever it is, or I'm trying to be who Jesus wants me to be, right? It can come from anywhere. 
But um, at some point, the realization hits that I've been trying to live a certain way, and I thought that was going to give me fulfillment and happiness, and it hasn't, right? And that's when a lot of people, they go out and buy the car, or they ditch the marriage, or they ditch the job, or whatever the thing is. But really, what's happening, as I see it, is it's, it's an invitation from the deeper part of you into learning who you really are. And that's where I love to meet people is in that inquiry. Well, who am I really? What relationship structure would fit me really? What job and purpose would fit me really? What, what religious or spiritual beliefs are truly mine? Uh, I like to play in all those spaces with, mm. with people. I've noticed that when people hit – just the other day I was talking with the person who – I said, you know, it kind of sounds like you're talking about a midlife crisis. He said, oh, it's not that shallow. And I said, oh, I think the midlife crisis is incredibly deep. Um, so I, the the shallow part are the ways that people kind of try to deal with the symptoms. You know, So all of those yes. symptoms that we put out there, yeah, they're pretty shallow, but you're trying to do something deep, which yeah. for me kind of raises the question um, – of your father, it sounds like for his life, really was living out what his purpose was. What do you think is the space between his identity and your inherited identity from him? Where where did it get twisted? Why why didn't it work for you? Oh, that's such a gorgeous question. Thank you. Um, I think it didn't work for me because I it, it it never works to try to be like your idol. You know, I, um, first of all, he's a man and I'm a woman. (laughs) So, um, so to model myself after the masculine, uh, had me, um, internalize a kind of disregard, you know, there, there was a a way that my father that I didn't realize till much later, but there, there was a way that my father didn't entirely respect the feminine. You know, part of that was his inherited identity growing up in a culture that values production and, um, you know, a certain level of intellectual superiority. And so when presented with a wife who was more emotional by nature and and he didn't totally know what to do with that in a respectful way. Mm-hmm. And so I inherited both of those things. And so I've had to do a bunch of work to learn to respect and honor my more emotional, um, unstructured uh, being side of my nature, because I had greatly privileged the doing and structured and directed and focused and uh, penetrating aspect of, of my being. But I sort of had left the rest by the wayside and had to go pick it up because I was making myself sick. So I'm wondering if there is a place where part of the reversion was going to something that maybe your mother had within her, even if it didn't come out in a healthier way, that she had pieces that you needed to reclaim. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. No doubt. In that process, um, obviously, um, it showed up for you in relationships that weren't working the way you wanted them to. Do you see with clients other ways that it shows up in their life that they're not uh, where they that they're they're playing this inherited identity rather than finding out who they truly are? Yeah, I think it shows up with 
uh, with the kind of work that they're doing. Um, some people are, I mean, I'm lucky because I've always loved my work and I've always oriented toward, even as I've changed what I do, I've always, that's been the place that's come clearly to me. When it was time to change. I could feel that and realize, oh, it's time to change what I'm doing. And, I, and then I would change it. That was the spot of clarity for me. For some of my clients, but for me, the relationship part was harder, right? Mm-hmm. For some of my clients, it's the opposite. They're in a great relationship that keeps growing and feels good over time, but they're stuck in a job they hate and they don't see a way um, how out. They don't see a way out because they're afraid to give up the income or they're afraid to... Um, do something that is outside the bounds of what their family thinks is respectable. Or, you know, if you've gone to all this schooling to be a lawyer or a doctor or something else, and you realize, oh, my God, I'm meant to be a hang glider, you know, a hang gliding instructor. I mean, there's a lot of conditioning you have to get through to give yourself permission to go be a hang gliding instructor, you know. Okay, so there are two pieces that I heard in there a couple of times, and I've heard you say a few times, and and that's um, comfort and fear. Mm. That part of what keeps people stuck is it's comfortable, not necessarily meaningful or deep or satisfying, but comfortable, and that there is fear in leaving that behind. Can you talk some more about those two pieces as the blocks on the path? Yeah, so comfort is... You know, it's the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, right? So even if the thing that's comfortable doesn't feel good to a system that's oriented towards survival, which is what our ego structure is oriented toward, it's created to help us survive, uh, it's going to want to stay with the thing you know because you know it. So even if it doesn't feel good, it's at least better than the unknown, which is this vast terrain, which for some people is filled with pitfalls and danger. And, you know, other people look at the unknown and get excited. Um, but those are not necessarily the people who are going to suddenly have this midlife realization, right? Because maybe those people have been changing all along. And so I think that that realization in midlife, which instead of I calling a midlife crisis, I like to call a midlife opportunity, um, that that moment for someone who's, whose entire structure is, is invested in survival and safety, that moment is terrifying. And so the fear of moving toward the unknown is one of the ways that, the, that will keep them stuck in comfort or even stuck in discomfort because at least it's a familiar discomfort. So if they were to leave the job, the fear is, well, I'll never find such a good job again and I'll be stuck doing something even worse. But there's not enough um, vision or ability to imagine a possibility where the opposite would happen, where I could leave the thing that's terrible and I could find something better. There, there's a, there's a Reverend Michael Beckwith, uh, Michael Bernard Beckwith has a saying that he says, um, pain pushes until the vision pulls. So until you create a strong enough vision for what you want and where you want to go, you're going to be pushed by pain. And if you're 
primary orientation is towards safety and structure, then you're going to be pushed by pain to stay where you are because you're afraid that it'll be worse out there. But the, the, the opposite can also happen where you're pushed by pain to actually make a change. For example, I had uh, chronic pain, physical pain in my body and, and illness. I mean, I had things going wrong. And it was that that finally made me listen my body, I, you know, I, I, instead of trying to fix it, I finally asked my body, like, well, what is it you're trying to show me? What am I meant to see here? Because, um, and when I realized that, oh, it's not that I'm incapable of happiness in a long-term committed relationship, it's that I'm unhappy in this specific relationship. And in fact, we are not going to be able to repair, this was with my ex-husband, I realized that we weren't going to be able to uh, come to a meeting where it was going to work for both of us. We tried in therapy, we got counseling, we did retreats, couples, we did a lot, a lot of work and, and finally got to a point where I realized, oh, this just isn't a good fit. Mm. And then I was able to make the risk of, well, this isn't a good fit, and I'm in my mid-40s, which is the demographic of women, greatest number of women getting divorced and never finding love again, but I'm willing to risk that because I can no longer make myself sick and stay here, you know? So if we go back, I mean, there, uh, what you're basically talking about is that there is a comfort, and yet um, <laughs> sometimes you're uncomfortably comfortable. I mean, you, it, it's, exactly. it's, it doesn't feel good. Um, and it shows up in other places, but it's the known enemy. You know, it's interesting. So many times I've talked with people and sit, you know, they're like, you know, I hate my job. Okay. Well, what happens if you leave? Oh, that's so scary. I, I can't even think about it. Exactly. And my next question is, well, if we thought about it, you know, what's the scare? What's the fear? And what I've noticed is so many people have the fear. There's like this, there's a, an overwhelming sense of it without any thoughts attached to it. You know, that there's no clarity on why that fear is. It's just there because their body wants to, all of, all of us want to be at a, as scientists say, a state of homeostasis, even if that homeostasis is stuck, you know, it's, it's not moving yep. where we want to go. It's not feeling good, but we know it. And so it sounds like that's what you're talking about, that the fear and comfort really are one and the same thing. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and it's the, um, I think it's the difference between having a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what the ratio is, but there's a certain number of the population, maybe you know this statistic, but there's a certain number of people who naturally have a growth mindset. I'm one of those. So they are willing to, to do things for their growth, even if it's scary and uncomfortable. And then there's a certain element of the population that has a fixed mindset. My mother is one of those. Um, you know, she's lived in the same apartment uh, for almost 50 years and does not want to ever change or clean out a closet or, you know, it hurt for her that the, the structure and the sameness is what 
keeps her happy. And for me, knowing I'm on a growth edge and I'm learning something, even if I don't like what's happening in the moment, is what keeps me happy. Yeah. there's. I think so. One of the things I like about Carol Dweck's uh, model of the growth and the fixed mindset is that she does point to the fact that sometimes we have a growth mindset in one area and a fixed mindset oh, yeah. in the other, you know, and so That's right. uh, a lot of us um, can have, for instance, I, I was working with a, a couple and, and the guy was like, you know, we, what do you want me to do? Learn about relationships? I'm, I'm too old to learn about relationships. And I said, didn't you tell me that you were just at a, a conference? It was a sales conference to learn more about being a good salesperson. He said, yeah, I'm always learning on how to do that. And I said, yeah, do you notice that you learn on one and not the other? And so part of what I was trying to do is bridge over, you know, that there's a growth mindset. We can pull into the places where there's a fixed mindset. But one of the things that you just talked about is what Tony Robbins talks about is that core human need that we need sameness and variety and how much of either we need. You know, it sounds like your mother really likes sameness and you really like variety, (laughs) but you also probably, if you have too much variety for too long, say, oh man, I got to just chill out and, you know, have it my same thing. Yeah. And your, your mother probably has places where she likes to exp- maybe, you know, try a new restaurant or something that, um, right. really that we're, what we're trying to do is figure out, as you talked about the balance, how do you find yes. the balance and how do you find a balance in a way that brings in something else at midlife? So if you were to talk about how the midlife opportunity, what's that, the transformation, What's the end result? What do you get to when you've gone through that? You get to a place of what I like to call congruence. Another word of that uh, for that is integrity. So where you know that what you're uh, both putting out into the world and how you're behaving and treating yourself is aligned, congruent with who you actually are. So, you, so you've done the work to understand yourself deeply enough that you can see your habitual reactions. So, so our habitual reactions to life are, are, are our wiring. I mean, it's just how we're wired. So our, you know, something happens, we have a habitual response. That's neurological. It's basically just encoded in the wiring. And what I find happens as you do the work through, let's say, a midlife opportunity is you start to be able to see, oh, there's my habitual response. And you and you can pause and have there's like a gap. You start to build a gap between the habitual response and then the choice about whether or not that's actually the response you want to have and put out there into the world so you feel the habitual thing and then there's a gap where you can ask yourself oh is that is that really true for me now is that what I want is that actually true or is that just my childhood you know and then and then you have more choice about the next step that you take so if we were to take all of this and and give a kind of a path you talked about the gap Um, I'm gonna just give you a leading question how do you leap across the, the gap? <laughs> well, I have a four-step formula <laughs> called the leap formula. <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
because I am a person who works from the inside out, I really, you know, there's some people who start from the outside in, like change your behavior and you'll change your state. And that's great. And I like to really work with change your state and then you can change your behavior. Um, and both are valid. And this is just how I work. So the leap formula is number step one, listen. I really think showing up as your best self in life begins with listening and listening not only to others, to understand and be curious and open to them, but also listening to yourself. So when you're going through some kind of deep change or where you're realizing you're not fulfilled with what you already have, it's time to slow down and listen. It's not a time to take rash action and go out and buy the red sports car. It's the time to slow down and listen to what your innards are actually telling you. Uh, then the second is... But before you go to express, let's go, Mm -hmm. let's stay with the listen for a minute. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, an example for, from you, as you were talking is, uh, and and it's, um, to bring it to the practical, you listen to your body, your body was telling you something was not right. Absolutely. So I listen to my body. Uh, I think I believe our bodies are, um, our bodies don't lie. Our thoughts often do. Um, our thoughts are conditioned by, by all sorts of, you know, what we've been taught. And so we have a lot of habitual thinking that if not, if, if we're not careful, it, it may not be the truest response. But the body um, has a lot of innate wisdom. Now, whether or not you want to act on every impulse of the body, that no, that's where your adult aware Ego comes in to say, oh, great, I feel that I have this attraction for this person and it's not in the bounds of my relationship to do anything about it. So thank you for the information that there's chemistry here and I'm not going to do anything about it. That's how I, I, you know, you don't shame the body for its natural responses to life. It's a feeling system. It's an animal, you know, awareness mechanism. And then that's why we have an aware ego that we then have choice about whether or not we act on what the body tells us. Does that make sense as yeah, a distinction? It does. Um, because a lot of times I think when people here listen, they're like, man, I've been listening to other people tell me how I should live my whole life. And um, and a lot of times people around us are as uncomfortable with us changing, or if not more so, than us being uncomfortable. So listening Very is not so. – so it's not just going to your – spouse or a friend or someone else and saying, Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? There's something else that's in that listening. So when do you know that you're hearing? I would say it's less that and more about, uh, turning inward. So, uh, I want to say something about the voices in our head here. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to work with the voices as I look at the voices as an orchestra and what often happens, um, and any orchestra Any great orchestra in the world has a conductor. But what's happened for a lot of us with respect to the the clamor of noise in our head is our conductor has left the building. Mm. And the, the one that I call the conductor is the aware part of us that stands outside of that inherited identity. It's it's like our highest self, somebody might call it, or our aware ego, someone else might call it, or our adult woman or man can even be called. But it's the part of us that's not coming out of a fractured uh, view of life that's based on some kind of traumatic thing that happened in childhood. Um, it's, it's a more aware place that sees the big picture. So most of us 
uh, have not necessarily made a very strong relationship with that conductor. And so the the instruments of the orchestra, which are our inner critic, our protector, our judge, our lover, our friend, our, you know, all the different uh, places in our head that have an opinion, um, they're often kind of soloing out of turn. You know, the inner critic, I like to say, is like a trumpet that forgot to sit down. You know, it's a trumpet just that keeps on soloing. And so the reason I talk about the voices this way is for many people, they have shame about the level of inner conflict that they have inside. And they have certain voices that they find acceptable and others that they reject and want to cut off and pretend don't exist. And those voices tend to then go live in the shadow and mess up our lives from behind the scenes. So by looking at it as an orchestra, it takes the value judgment out of it. It lets you hear what everybody has to say, but choose who you want conducting your life, which is your aware conductor. And that that when you create the right balance. This is work that really needs to be done with someone. I think it's very, that this part is difficult to do alone. But uh, when your conductor is in charge, you know, your inner critic can pop up and it's like, oh, thank you very much. Please sit down. I've got this. You know, your relationship to your chaos, typical chaos in your head begins to change. And again, you have more choice and you're not rejecting uh, huge parts of yourself anymore, mm-hmm. which then allows you to move forward with more grace and less fear and less sabotage, frankly. <laughs> um, so that's part of the listening I work with as well, is I, I help my clients uh, get their conductor in charge, mm-hmm. and, uh, as I language it, and learn to recognize that all their voices uh want something good for them. They just don't necessarily have the whole picture or know what that is. And so they have their very tiny, you know, the critic really wants you to be successful and productive, but it thinks that tearing you down is the way to do it. And instead it's like, oh, thank you for your opinion. I'm going to listen over here to my, you know, uh, more constructive voice that's going to not help have me feel so terrible. (laughs) instead but thank you for your opinion you can sit down now like so the yeah that was a long explanation but no it's you're stopping listening to the cowbell (laughs) clang 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 yeah let's let's get a little violin in here (laughs) something else yeah something else okay cowbell does not have the right to dominate the entire symphony it it might might be a touch here and there and that's it yep (laughs) okay so after you've been listening to those voices and and getting the, the conductor back kind of in charge uh, e is e is stands for express okay so um, you want to look at where can I express myself authentically where have I been expressing myself um, in a hidden way where I've been afraid to say what's true for me you know or I'm trying to um, say things in a way that I think the other person might want to hear mm-hmm. you know where where are all the places that I've been cloaking how I really feel. Hmm. And this is something that, you know, like you said, so accurately, 
when a person begins to come into their authentic self, it destabilizes their relationships because relationships have been built on a certain dynamic. So if one person begins to change the dynamic, it is destabilizing. Mm -hmm. So it's not about expressing yourself like come hell or high water, you know, I'm, I'm a say my thing. You know, I'm not saying that because I'm always about um, resonance and connection. So, but but with the part of expression, the question is, where have I been shoving down my authentic expression to be accepted? And where can I begin to be more true to myself, be more honest, invite the person I love to know me more deeply? They may not like what they find out, but they're going to at least know me more deeply and we'll have an actual more honest relationship than instead of a relationship that's built on a facade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So express just to kind of draw a distinction is different than explode. Some people, you know, they get to that point and they explode on the other person. Uh, Expressing it is, uh, it comes from a place of wanting to connect and wanting to explain and be understood, not wanting to blame and, um, explode. That's an, exactly right. It comes from a place of wanting to be seen and known and okay. to connect. So yeah. let's, let's keep on the leap. What, what's, what happens so after that? The a, uh, what happens after that is learning to ask for what you want and, and also ask for help. So the asking step, um, is a step that is very difficult as, uh, I mean, you tell me, in my experience, I think it's it's a little more weighted toward women that it's quite hard to ask for what they want because they're naturally oriented and they've been trained to be caregivers. So they have their very much their finger on the pulse of what's good for everybody. And uh, I see a lot of women that have a difficulty in asking for what they want, um, especially if they think the other person not want to give it to them. Mm-hmm. So then they tend to not ask. And, and, and there's a lot of both men and women who have a very hard time asking for help. You know, somehow we've absorbed this erroneous idea that we're supposed to do it all alone and that independence is king. And, you know, that's just not the truth. Uh, you know, I, 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 we, we are we're made for connection. Human beings thrive in connection and we wither in isolation. Mm-hmm. And um, and so. It's important, especially as you're learning to be your authentic self instead of your inherited self, to to ask, to ask for what you want. Ask for help. Uh, you know, open yourself, be vulnerable. That That's a huge part of, of coming into your own authentic person. Because you start to discover that the world does accept, like, does accept you. You know, we will, many, so many of us walk around thinking we're not, we're unlovable, we're not worthy, we're, that something's wrong with us. So we do all this stuff to cover it up and try to be acceptable. When the truth is that if you would just be yourself, like you would get to discover you're accepted, you know, <laughs> and, and maybe not, you know, maybe not every single thing you say is accepted, but who you are is acceptable, mm. is beautiful, is loving, is it's fine. It's fine. So all that jockeying to try to pretend like you don't need anybody, you don't need to do that anymore. Just ask, ask. 
oh, would you please get me a cup of tea? You know, like practice with the small stuff. Uh, oh, you know, oh, you're going to the store? Would you get me a bar of chocolate? Like that can be hard for some people. So hard. Start there. You know, it's, it's just letting your desires be known. I like the, the idea of smart starting small. And you, you said that you think it's a, a, a difficulty for women. I think it's a difficulty for people. It's just how it's expressed differently. Um, Ooh, say more, please. Yeah, well, okay. Um, so I think women are programmed uh, a lot in our culture to be the help, right? And so they don't ask for help. They want to help. Um, I think men are often programmed to do. Uh, not ask for help, but to do, because if you ask for help, you're being weak. If you ask for help as a woman, you're being needy. Um, in the oh, end, that's so good. Yes. Yeah, and, and in the end, what's the difference? Weak and needy. You know, it's they both are pieces. The interesting thing is how, um, in a relationship that's healthy, um, th- the other person generally wants to help, <laughs> wants to right. provide. And and so in some ways, the person who's not asking is cutting off a piece of the relationship, uh, presuming the other person won't do that. And and so I think you're right. That it's a great thing to warm up with the small stuff and then get to the bigger stuff. And I, I, I just want to highlight what you said that is so important because by not asking, by not giving – the person who loves you theoretically the most in life, by not giving them the opportunity to give to you by asking for things, you are cutting off the flow. Mm -hmm. And you're denying the giver the pleasure of giving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you're so afraid to be a burden. Yeah. You know? So that is such a key turnaround. When that confidence comes to start asking for what you want and asking for help and and discovering that the people who love you are thrilled to give it to you, again, that does so much for undoing some of the shenanigans that you know we took on from uh, from our upbringing. And oh, by the way, if you make a request and the other person says, no, I'm not going to do anything for you. That does give you an indication of the relationship. <laughs> it's, it's answered another question. <laughs> very clarifying thing right there. Very quickly. Okay. Yeah, you so, got your answer. <laughs> you might not like that. So let's go uh, with the P. What is the P? So the P stands for permission. Hmm. And I work a lot with people around uh, permission to uh, want what they want, to be who they are, to um, – we again, when we grow up, we are taught so quickly as children to act in, you know, the be quiet at school. Uh, children, I mean, I grew up with the, you know, children should be seen, not heard thing, and you know, we're, we're taught so quickly to be the way our adults want us to be, so they are comfortable. And so, a, a, a huge part of coming into yourself and being your own person is discovering the places where you don't give yourself permission to, you know, want that bar of chocolate if you want it. God forbid, you know, you should want a bar of chocolate because maybe it's going to make you fat. I mean, we, we have so many strictures that we have on ourselves um, where we deny our desires. And again, there are times where it's appropriate to deny your desires. You know, it's not like go out there and do whatever you want. Um, without any regard for anyone else because we're relational beings and how we act 
has impact on other people and, you know, et cetera. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting people go out there and be selfish maniacs, but, um, but I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of permission and by, um, really giving yourself permission to expand your sense of what you're allowed to have and who you're allowed to be and what you're allowed to want. And all of us, you mentioned homeostasis, you know, we all have um, a pleasure ceiling or, or what's another term for it? Well, I'm just going to go with pleasure ceiling. So we have, we have a ceiling for the amount of good that we can talk that we're that we allow ourselves in our life so very hot so here's an example you know you're in the best relationship of your life you love your job all these great things are happening and all of a sudden you um start finding fault and picking at your partner you start criticizing and picking at them and the thing is they didn't just suddenly from day from yesterday to or today become a stupid person, you know, who does it all wrong. What happened is you hit your pleasure ceiling for how much good you can be okay with in your life. And you're trying, you're picking at the thing to bring yourself down to the level of homeostasis and discomfort Mm -hmm. that you are used to and, and comfortable with. We're back to comfort and fear again. Very often people blow out on the good in their life way more than they blow out on the bad. And so permission an aspect of permission as I work with it is to examine your pleasure ceiling and, you know, learn to feel when you're hitting that point of like, oh, my God, this is going so well. I know something terrible is just around the corner and then sabotaging it. Mm-hmm. The permission piece is to actually give yourself permission to have and enjoy the good and to and to grow into it so that you can allow yourself more. And one of the greatest ways to do that, the primary practices for doing that is gratitude practice, you know, making a journal and a list every day of what you're grateful for and what's good in your life. And also putting your attention where can you where can you pour out your attention on someone else and give to them and lift them up? Those two practices are primary ways to raise your pleasure ceiling and have more permission in your life for it to be good. It's interesting. A lot of the um, so much of our discussions these days are about mindfulness and so a lot. Of, I've had people say, you know, life is just too good. I'm like, what is what do you mean life's too good? And it always uh, revolves around the same thing. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so my response is, well, it will. <laughs> it's going to drop. That's what life does. That's right. But can you enjoy right now? Not yes. do you sabotage now because maybe that would keep something bad from happening. It doesn't. I mean, the bad life is like that. We have good moments and bad moments. And how do you... How do you be a part of the low and enjoy the high uh, rather than sabotaging the high because you know there might be a low sometime? And that sounds like that's what you're talking about. This isn't about... That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's not like life is always going to be easy, but how do you make the shift that maybe even life being easy isn't the goal at all? That's That's right. That's living into comfort rather than living into something higher, something that's about the growth, that's about the transformation. So we're we're about at the end of the time. So uh, Maria Elizabeth, you've given a lot. I mean, 
just here it is, four steps. Listen, listen to yourself, not listen to all the crazies around you or the crazy voices, but or the cowbell or whatever that is. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Express what that is to somebody, not explode. Uh, ask for uh, what you want and uh, ask for help also. And then give yourself permission to enjoy that. That's the leap process. So you've got that um, in a process that you've outlined and people can get that. So can you talk about how to get that? You bet. Uh, just go to my website, which is M-E-M-A-L-I. So that stands for Marie Elizabeth Molly. And again, that's M-E-M-A-L-I dot com slash leap, L-E-A-P. Perfect. And so you can, uh, if you go there, you can download the leap process, the leap formula and uh, work through it on your own. And you can also learn more about Marie Elizabeth and her work by going to that website. And so um, if this is clicked for you and you say, man, maybe I've got some midlife transformation, definitely get that that information on Leap and also just see if maybe Marie Elizabeth would be somebody that you might want to hook up with and uh, see if you can do some work around those issues. Marie Elizabeth, thank you for being with me. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I um, there is also a button there for you to schedule a call if you'd like to talk to me. So perfect. You can contact me through there. Excellent. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. It's good I to talk to you. Love the questions you ask and and your inquisitive mind and your brilliance. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.